Babylonian way of counting, the third year of Joachim. But Jeremiah, on the other hand, is using the Jewish time, which begins at one. And so he includes that first year, which the Babylonians count as the ascension year. So let's not be confused if you read Jeremiah 25 and look at Daniel chapter 1 and say, oh, is this um, sort of a contradiction? No, it's not. But the important thing I want us to see here is that we are dealing with real people and real events. As Daniel writes, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, he comes to Jerusalem and he besieged it. And what does he do? He carries away the vessels of the house of God. He walks into the temple. He conquers the city. He takes the vessels, these precious vessels. And then he carries them to the house of his God. And what does he do? He places it, or he places them in the treasury of his God. What is going on here? He walks into the temple of the God of Israel. He takes the verses and he places them in the treasury of his own God. And you see, Babylon was located in the land of Shinar. And if you read in Genesis chapter 11, the land of Shinar was where people gathered together to make a name for themselves. And what did they say? Well, let us, let us build this tower. Let us make a kingdom for ourselves. Let us make an empire for ourselves. And Babylon symbolizes the place of rebellion against God. And so Nebuchadnezzar, in that line, is telling the Israelites, I have conquered your God. I have conquered you. I'm taking this vessel and I'm placing it in the house of my God. And it's the same thing all around the world. The world is characterized with rebellion against God. That is man. He wants to defile God. And right from Genesis to the whole book of the Bible, that is the story of mankind. And here, Nebuchadnezzar is just proving that. But for God's people, the question would be, as they are invaded, as they are besieged, as they are conquered, what is going on? Is it really true, probably as the historians would say, that, well, Babylon, they were a strong empire. They had a strong army, stronger than the Israelites. As Habakkuk describes them, they were ruthless and cruel and violent. They had no regard for anyone. They were strong. And so when you look at it historically, well, it makes sense. Babylon is strong. The military is stronger than that of Israel. Or maybe the Babylonian priest will say, well, our gods are powerful and stronger than the God of Israel. But our Bible gives us a different perspective. Because Daniel tells us who let this happen. In verse 2, he says, And the Lord gave Joachim, king of Judah, into his hand. 
And so as the people would ask, well, where is God in this? Daniel is saying, this happened because the Lord allowed it to happen. This happened because the Lord, who is the owner of heaven and earth, who is in control of all things, allowed it to happen. And well, maybe that didn't settle your question. Well, why did it really happen? Why did God allow this to happen? And Daniel also gives us the answer to that. In Daniel chapter 9, in his prayer, when he turns to God in confession, he acknowledges how great God is. And he refers to God as the one who keeps his covenant and steadfast love. Well, he refers to Israel as those who have disobeyed God, who haven't listened to his voice, who haven't kept his covenant with them. And what God is doing with Nebuchadnezzar here is being faithful to his covenant. You see, God had promised the land to Abraham and his descendants. He has said, I would give this land to your children. And years later, he delivers them from Egypt. He makes a covenant with them. And in Leviticus 26, he promises them blessings if they obey him. But he promises them a cost if they disobey him. And part of that cost was that he was going to expel them out of the land. And when they were living in disobedience, God sent prophets to warn them. God warned them. He called unto them to repent, to turn back to him. To respond in repentance and obedience. But they didn't heed the warnings. And now God is judging Israel with a pagan and wicked king. Nebuchadnezzar is God's instrument to discipline Israel. See, Israel wanted the blessings of the land, but they didn't want to obey God. They didn't want to respond to God in obedience. So I don't know if you were someone like that who wants God's blessing, but you don't want to obey God. You want God to bless you, but to keep his word is not your desire. So we just sang, trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. See, God is keeping his covenant. He's been faithful to what he had promised. He had promised judgment for their sin and disobedience. But part of that covenant was that he wasn't going to leave them. And so this chapter ends in 
in 21, telling us that Daniel was there until the first year of the king of Cyrus. And that was where Cyrus gave the, his decree that the Israelites can return to the land. And God doesn't completely forsake his people, even in their disobedience. He is still faithful to his covenant. So first, what I want us to see is that God is a faithful God. He keeps his word. Not just his word to bless us with all good things, but his promise of judgment of sin. And also as God uses Nebuchadnezzar and, and Cyrus to accomplish his plan, you see that God is sovereign over human affairs. God is sovereign over world affairs. God uses history. God uses world events. God uses even wicked kings to accomplish his purpose. Nothing going on in the world is outside God's control. Even in the darkest times, God is working out his plan. In verse 3 to 7, as we move on, we see that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't only carry vessels. He commands the chief eunuch to bring some of the people of Israel. In a sense, he, he tells him to bring the best of the people. They are described as those of the royalties, of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance without any physical defect, handsome, the best brains and minds, the wise ones, the healthiest, the ones with the highest IQs. In a sense, he's saying, don't bring me the jokers among them. Bring me the best. And he has a program for them. He wants to train them for, th for three years. He wants to give them the best food and wine to educate them before they are brought before him. Nebuchadnezzar takes them out of Israel and he wants to completely take Israel out of them. He wants to make them complete Babylonians. And these boys were youths at this point. They were young. I don't know if a change of location does anything to you. You know, we could think about various people who we know who, when they leave the safety of their parents in Nigeria, you know, regularly attending church, and all that. And they come to Cyprus. Maybe the first two, three, four weeks. They're very active. But after that, what happens? You see, a change of location does a lot. But not just that. So these boys were brought up 
in the Jewish homes. They must have thought the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. And I'm sure there were some who, when they arrived there, they shouted, wow, freedom at last. We are free from this bondage at home. But he doesn't only change their location or their names, or or rather their, their education or their food. He changes their names. You see, these four boys, we are not focusing on Daniel and his friends. They had names that said something about the God of Israel. Daniel's name means God is my judge. Mishael, who is like God. Hananiah, Yahweh has been gracious. God shows grace. Azariah, Yahweh has helped. And what does this chief eunuch do? He gives them names that say something about the Babylonian God. Their names are names that are dedicated to Madoc, Aku, and Nebo. These are all Babylonian gods. And he's changing not just their names, but their identity. He no longer wants them to identify with the God of Israel, but with the gods of Babylon. And maybe these were all external things. But you see, today we live in a world where identity and the search for meaning is a big thing. People are searching for their identities in several things. And probably you've heard identifiers this and that and all that. There are different identities. And so this is not just what name did your parents give to you. But if I were to come to you today and ask you, who are you? What would be? your primary identity. See, the Nazis were very bad people, okay? They were horrible people. They, they killed millions of Jews. And in the midst of that, there were certain Christians who, you know, were trying to sort of um, exterminate Hitler and all those who were involved. And one of them was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And when he was arrested, he was placed in a prison. And there he wrote a book, Letters from Prison. And one of that, there is a poem that, for the very first time I read it, I just couldn't get away from it. But in the last stanza of that poem, he, he says this, and They are all questions. He says, who am I? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? 
Am I both at once? A hypocrite before others and before myself, a contemptibly will begun weakling. Or is it something within me still like a beaten army, fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am dying. You see, Daniel's real identity, it was not in the external stuffs. He knew who he was because he knew that God knew him and he knew God. And it was that internal identity, a heart issue, that he knew God. That even when his name was changed, he resolved that he would not defile himself because he knew who he was. Well, Christian, who are you in this world? Before we, we go into Daniel not eating the food, but this was not something that was led by an external protest. It was a heart issue. His name was changed. But he knew what his real name was. And that was never going to be changed. See, although Daniel lived in a pagan world, he did not live for it. And that's why he resolves not to defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Some versions would say he, he proposed, he determined, he decided not to defile himself. If you are going to make a real determination not to defile yourself, not to make yourself unclean, unholy, it's not going to be because you have a list of resolutions. It has to begin with a changed heart. So why does Daniel, you know, he, did, he didn't protest the name, so his location or the education system and all that. Well, there are various ideas on, <coughs> on why he probably didn't want to eat the food. Some say, you know, according to the food law, God had prohibited certain foods for the Israelites not to eat. And in Numbers chapter 6, um, we see a group of people called the Nazarites who, in their vow, were not to take wine and strong drink. But Daniel is not one of those. So we won't say that that's one of the reasons why he, because it's not just the food, it's the wine is also included. And others would say the food and the wine are first offered to the gods of Babylon before they are served to them. Or probably in the slaughtering and preparation of the meat, they were not clean. And so there were still blood stains on them. 
But regardless of whatever reason it is, the real issue is Daniel didn't want to defile himself. And before we, we fight about certain foods that we should eat or not eat, well, if you read in the Gospels, Jesus declares all food clean in Mark chapter 7. And so these food laws were just for the Israelites to distinguish them from other nations. It was a form of identity for them. In Mark 7, Jesus says, do, not see, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defy him? Since it enters his heart from his mouth and is expelled. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, envy. And all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. And so we see that the real thing is the condition of the person's heart. And so Daniel goes to the chief of the eunuchs. He does not protest. He asks not to be defiled with the food. But the chief of the eunuchs, you know, he says, Daniel, I, I'm, I understand you are a good boy, but I fear the Lord my king. As we shall see in chapter 2 next Sunday, Nebuchadnezzar is known for his anger and rage. And so if the chief of eunuchs defiles him, he knows what is going to happen to his head. He's going to be chopped off. And so the chief of the eunuch doesn't grant Daniel's request. And so he goes to the lower in command. In verse 11, Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel and his friends. He comes to him with a proposal. As I was reading these verses, I was tempted to bring in my scientific mind to read. You have your hypothesis, you test, you observe, and you conclude. Because in a sense, this is what Daniel was asking the chief of the eunuch to do. I don't want to eat this, but this is what I want you to do. Test us for 10 days. Just give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then after 10 days, observe our appearance and compare us with others. Then whatever you see, you conclude, and then you deal with us accordingly. And at the end of 10 days, that is what happens. The steward looks at them after feeding them with vegetables and water for 10 days. They appeared better and fatter than others who were eating the king's food. And it's at this point that 
maybe, maybe many of us might have been told, well, Daniel decided to eat vegetables and water for 10 days. So, you probably should take away all the meat and wine and eat only vegetable and water. But you see, before this, Daniel tells us that God had given favor and compassion to him and his friends. In chapter 2, Daniel told us that the Lord had given the king of Judah into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. It's the same God who gave Judah into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, who gave favor and compassion before the chief eunuchs, who causes the vegetables and water to make Daniel and his friends look better than the ones who were eating the meat and wine. This is not a diet plan. Daniel is telling you that God has worked a miracle. It is God who was with them in Babylon. And so God is not just sovereign over world affairs, but over their individual lives. Though we've been talking about the wildfire, and yesterday I was really struggling with how to illustrate this. And I'm very I'm not so very good with illustrations. And so I I just went on the internet and checked the news and I saw you know, a news story on the wildfires. And it's always interesting to read, you know, comment sections. Maybe you've seen this. And the person who shared the news, he said, the miracle rain finally ends the seven days continuous effort to extinguish the wildfires. Then he says, Mother Nature finally answered our prayers. And I thought to myself, are you kidding me? Mother Nature finally answers our prayers. Another person said, it's climate change. Then the third one, artificial rain, not natural rain. Why are people ready to thank anything and anyone but God? So as not to be ignorant, I went on the internet and I tapped, what are the chances of rain falling in Cyprus in June? Zero days. Okay. Modern nature. The growth from the vegetables and water was a miracle. And Daniel and his friends knew that. They knew who to thank for what had happened. They were totally dependent on God in that land. While in a foreign land, they were completely dependent on him. Because they knew that he is a sovereign God. They knew that he is faithful to his people even in the midst of his judgment on them. 
Daniel and his friends had taken a dangerous stand. But God gave them favor and compassion. And God wrought a miracle in their lives. You see, God rewards those who are faithful and dependent on him. The reward is not probably necessarily going to be like Daniel. You're getting fatter and healthier when you begin eating vegetable and water. But in the midst of all the temptations and challenges in Cyprus, those who are faithful and dependent on God, he rewards them. But when you choose to go your own way, well, don't expect God's blessing. But God truly blesses those who are faithful and dependent on him. And that was, that's what is going on here. Because as you can see again in verse 17, that same phrase appears again. God gave them learning. God gave. Now we could imagine after the three years of training, when the chief eunuch brings Daniel and his friends before Nebuchadnezzar, and he sees how brilliant they are, how skilled they are, how wise, with all understanding, he must have thought to himself, well, Our education system is really what has done this. But Daniel says, no. It is the God that we are looking unto. It is the God that brought us here that has given us all this. He finds them ten times better. This is sort of a hyperbole to show how, how good and Daniel, how good Daniel and his friends where? Daniel is given a specific gift for understanding in all visions and dreams. And in chapter 2, as we shall see, he interprets the dream of the king. And the king speaks to them. They stood before the king. They were promoted. They were found worthy. God rewards their faithfulness. How shall we live in a foreign world, or in a foreign land? Not a foreign as in Cyprus, but in a world where we are tempted every day to walk away from God. How shall we survive? How, how will I remain faithful? How will you remain faithful? How shall you, you remain faithful in the midst of suffering? It's not to look to Daniel. But it's to look to the God that Daniel trusted. Because if, if we're reading our Bibles, we know 
that even if we're looking for examples, Daniel is not the chief example. Jesus is our chief example. And just like Daniel, Jesus was in his own exile when he came into this sinful world. But in the midst of the temptations, he obeyed God. He submitted to his will. Jesus was faithful to God. Yet, Jesus bore God's judgment, not for his own sins, but for the sins of his people. And I can imagine his, his disciples, when they heard that he had been taken off to be crucified, they're asking themselves, what is happening? Just like those on the road to Emmaus, where Jesus appeared to them after his resurrection, he said, we thought he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. But it's as if the story has ended. He's gone. But when Peter rises up, when he stands to to speak to the people on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, Peter there reminds them that Jesus was a man attested to them by God with mighty works and wonders. And signs that God did through him, as you know. But then he says, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And so just as God was sovereign over what was going on with Israel, when Jesus was on the cross in the darkest of times, God was doing something. God wasn't away. Although you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men, God used lawless men. God used a wicked king, a wicked ruler like Pilate. The same way God used a wicked ruler like Nebuchadnezzar to accomplish his plan. Christ was crucified by wicked and lawless men but it was according to God's definite plan. But what did God do? Jesus, who was obedient and faithful to him, just as God was faithful to Daniel and his friends, God raised him up from the dead. Losing the pangs of death, Peter says, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. God was faithful to Jesus on the cross. And God raised him up. And God highly exalted him. Why are we gathered here today? Is it because you just want to listen to someone say some things to you? No. We are gathered because Even at the darkest time, God was doing something. 
God was nailing to the cross your sins and mine. And because Jesus is risen, because God was faithful to him, we know that he will be faithful to us. See, God's faithfulness to you and I, it's dependent on his faithfulness to Jesus. And because he was faithful to his son, even when the most terrible things in the world are going on, we know that God knows and he's in control. And you might ask, well, what is God doing in the midst of all that is going on? What is God doing today? Well, God is building his church all over the world. And God is using even the most wicked of rulers to accomplish his purposes. That when we hear of certain places where it's impossible to imagine that there is a church, well, there are God's people there. And so the real question for you is this. Are you part of God's people? And if you are part of his people, are you being faithful to him? You see, God will keep his own people. God will preserve his own people, even in exile. He will be faithful to his promise. Are you going to look to him? Are you going to trust him? Just like Daniel and his friends did. Their example is to point us to God. To look to him.